The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, it's Tony Macia with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger by going to thecharlotteledger.com. Today's podcast is part of a special series we're doing in which we interview winners of the Charlotte Ledger's 40 Over 40 Awards. The recipients are people ages 40 and up who are making a big difference in the Charlotte area, people who saw a need and took action. You can find out more at ledger40over40.com. The host of today's podcast is Steve Dunn, and his day job, he's a mediator who offers dispute resolution services through the Charlotte office of Miles Mediation and Arbitration. Enjoy. Welcome to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. I am Steve Dunn. I'm joined today by Tracy Hewitt, now retired, most recently a district family court judge in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. Welcome, Judge Hewitt. Thank you so much for the opportunity. We're happy to have you. And I'm catching you at a an interesting and wonderful moment in life. You've been retired now for not quite a year. So you retired at the end of last year. And I, I'd love to begin with your thoughts about retirement and what it, what it means to you personally and professionally to have a career and then come to that career's end. Sure. I mean, that's a, a great question. And it's one of those things maybe we individually, personally don't know the answer to until we actually do it. You know, it's like saying, well, how are you going to grieve when this happens? Well, you don't know until it happens. And I was pretty darn sure I knew that I was going to love it. And I am absolutely correct in that. I also know that I'm extremely good at it. You're good at being retired? I'm so good at it. What are the key skills involved in being a good retired person? I think part of it is having a lot of social connections. A lot of mine are familial. My daughter and two grandsons, and I now have a granddaughter, live very close by. My mother just turned 91. She lives very close by. So some day, some days or weeks, I'll go, okay, wow, I saw my brother today. I saw my daughter. I saw two out of three grandkids. I saw three neighbors. I saw, and, and you go, what a full day of just these wonderful interactions, seeing your mom a couple times a week, being able to go with her to the doctor and sit there and make sure that she feels comfortable and all that kind of thing. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention all the travel. That is wonderful. And as someone who enjoys travel myself, I wonder where where you've been lately and what are your favorite places that you've ever been? Yeah, I, I do enjoy international travel. I don't particularly enjoy nine hour flights. But in January, I went to Virginia Beach. That's when you know you don't know how to manage your timeshare when you're in Virginia Beach in January. February was Argentina and Uruguay. March was Litchfield. April was the Bahamas with the kids. May was Greece, which was amazing. June was Vermont and Lake Champlain up in New England. July. I'm, I'm just going to stop you there because you, well, it was obviously, it was someplace remarkable and it, you've got something going every single month. So you really are committed to the, the travel project. 
That's how I roll. Is it something that you've always enjoyed and now you just have have time to really do it? Or is it something that you've found within yourself in retirement? Yeah, I've always enjoyed travel, but not had as many opportunities, either time or resource, you know, related. But now, you know, when you can go pretty much whenever you want and you don't have to go just when the kids are out of school or you know, what have you, it's it's a freedom for sure. And it helps money-wise to be able to look at when the dates to a certain place are less expensive and that kind of thing. So, Well, we started a little bit at the end of this conversation. We, we, we began with the present, but to get to retirement, you've got to have a career. And in your case, it wasn't just one. You had two full careers uh, that you experienced starting out at the Charlotte Observer, where you worked for over 20 years in the advertising department. Is that right? So right. How, how does that happen? It, I, I knew you as a judge, but, uh, but that's not where you started. And I wonder uh, how you, what, what your experience was in, the early, in your first career, if you will, and then how a person decides uh, to make such a profound change. Right. And and I think to start, and I didn't know this at the time, but my overarching mantra for, for my life is basically, blessed are the oblivious. You know, when you kind of don't know everything that you're getting into, you want to be a little bit careful about that. But I got the job at The Observer because I was 19 years old and I needed a job and an apartment. And I just got this job. It's called tear sheets. They used to literally rip the newspapers and send copies to people. And so through observation, the Observer was a great sort of city within itself at that time, you know. And so you had writers that you were bumping into going to the coffee pot. You had copy editors. You had all, you know, and you had advertising salespeople. And to me, that was like the most glorious. They dressed really cool. They were funny. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's for me. And they were making money. Right. How'd you find your way in there with them then? Yeah. So that that is a great question because the catch-22 with sales is you can't get a sales job until you have sales experience. And so how do you do that, right? So as I sort of rose up through the ranks at that time, I would try to look at opportunities and create ways to make a sales-type position. For instance, as an administrator with one of the regional products, I said, hey, can I sell this special section for beach people that nobody's done in a couple years? Sure, you can do that. So then, so then I was able to say I had some sales uh, stuff. Well, you're starting to give me a clue about how you become the kind of person who changes career midstream because you, from an early age, are a person who made things happen for yourself. You, you saw something that caught your attention and that you thought you might like to be involved in, and you, t you did what needed to be done to make it happen on your own. Yeah, and, and, and but for your last few words, on your own, I would say, yes, that's true. And, and when I was reflecting on, you know, how did I get here from wherever, it is very important to note that I, you know, again, blessed are the oblivious. I lucked into a good family. You know, I, I had good role models. I had a history of strong women and successful women. And, you know, I had a safety net. 
I knew if it all fell apart, I'd still have a place to go. And not everyone has that. And that was very important knowledge when I was working with indigent clients to understand that that safety net is often not there. And so folks' ability to take chances, to step out, to even see the possibility is, is limited sometimes. Well, in, in your ability, you, one way that you saw a possibility and acted on it was making the decision to go to law school. And that is not a natural step in the evolution of a newspaper sales person, right? So, so what was it that caused you to start thinking about that? And then what was it that pushed you over the edge to say, you know what, I'm not just going to think about this. I'm actually going to do it. Yeah, that was a sort of interesting combination of factors that went into it. And to to be, I don't think this would be a surprise to anyone, at some point, the selling advertising for a newspaper became more and more difficult because the internet, you know, was, was coming along and those dollars, the observer wasn't the only game in town anymore. And so it was getting more and more difficult to make those numbers. And it was pretty darn stressful because you're working for a big corporation, right? That has shareholders that's saying, okay, you did this last year. You got to do more than that this year. Well, how? So there was that pressure and not to wax too religious, I was going to a church at the time, Siegel Avenue Presbyterian, and the preachers, the preacher continued to say, God does not call us to be comfortable. And dang it, I took that to heart because I was pretty comfortable. And at the same time, I, I knew that I had certain skills and I felt that those skills could be used to help other people. Now, I, I'm one of those people that doesn't believe in true altruism, altruism. We do things to help people because it makes us feel good. And, and that the third component of everything was my daughter was in high school and I came home one day and I, this law school thing was in my head and I came home one day and she goes, mom, I just want to move somewhere and start all over. And I said, me too. So you did it. That's what we did. Yeah. Did you move physically? Or did you yes. move to Charlotte or did uh, you move moved, within Charlotte? Or we what? moved from Charlotte to Durham and we moved a year before school, a uh, year before I started law school because I wanted her to have 10th, 11th, 12th in the same high school. I was mostly a single mom most of the time. So, so we moved to Durham. She went to high school. I went to law school. I believe I graduated. She graduated a year before I graduated. You just did it. We just did it. How about that? Wow. And lived to tell the story. No. Well, here you are. You, next thing you know, you're a lawyer. And I, I know you worked in the public defender's office. Was that your first job out of law school or did you do something else in between? That was my first job out of law school, my only job out of law school. I didn't know. I knew that's what I wanted to do. But of course, I didn't know what I would find or where I would find it, what kind of job I would get. And again, blessed oblivion, I got very, very lucky to be hired in Charlotte where I could come back. I had rented my house out. I could come back. My daughter could come back. 
So that was super lucky. And to be back in sort of a known space. I get a question a lot. I'm a lawyer myself, and I get a, I'm going to ask you a question that I think I've got my own answer to. I'm not asking you a question that I don't think I know the answer to, but it's, the reason I'm asking it to you is because I still get asked this question a lot, and it kind of surprises me. And it's the question about how how do you, as a lawyer, reckon with the fact that you're often thrust into positions of representing people or businesses who have done things that they maybe shouldn't have done, right? And in in my work, it was in the civil context. In the criminal context, it's very stark and very clear. You're representing a lot of folks, most of whom, if they go to trial, end up getting convicted. And most of whom, you know, I'm not going to ask you to agree with me about this, but most of them get convicted because they actually did the crime, right? And so I know how I answer that question. I don't think it's a hard question, but people ask me all the time. And do they ask you the same thing? And, And what do you tell folks about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that is the uh, question on most people's minds, and and most starkly the question was sort of posed to me as I was walking around the block one evening, and a former observer person was sitting on the porch, I didn't know her well, and she goes, how do you sleep at night? Which, A, I don't know you that well for you to ask a question like that. But I slept, except for being anxious about doing my job well, I always slept great. I always knew this was the right thing because what people understand better than how do you represent someone, let's just say, who's guilty. How do you represent, how do you defend someone who you know is guilty? And and often you say, I don't know. No, hold on. Let's dwell on that, that for guilty. a moment. No, let's let's, let's dwell on okay. that for a moment because that's actually, I think, an important part of the job, which is to be humble in your judgments about things. I think we all learn pretty quickly in the practice that you're not always right when you think you're right. And sometimes you think you know something and you find out you were wrong and that it is an important part of our system and the process for everybody to have an advocate who advocates on their behalf regardless But as a lawyer, I think it's important in doing your work to know what you know and know what you don't know and and really refrain from assuming too much. Right. And and so the person, you've got a real person in front of you with a real problem. But what I explain to people that they understand a little bit better is I'm defending the Constitution. We have an adversarial system. Of justice here. It's not a truth-finding system as they have in some, you know, fact-finding council or whatever. This is, I'm supposed to hold the state to, to every due process condition that they are supposed to meet. I'm supposed to hold the state to the highest standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and the person before me deserves that because they're citizens that, you know, deserve the rights under the Constitution. And so I always felt very challenged and excited by what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to find what you guys didn't do. I'm supposed to find your your lack of evidence. Well, and just it, as, as simple as just making sure you're playing by the rules. It's, it's as simple as making sure that the police do what they're supposed to do the way that they're supposed to do it in gathering evidence and in charging crimes 
if there's no accountability for it, then there's, there's no reason. So I, as, as a lawyer myself, the way I often would explain it to people would be, look, if my client did $100,000 worth of wrong, justice doesn't require them to pay a million dollars for that, right? I mean, somebody's got to be there to make sure that it comes out the roughly the way that it should. And you can't trust the other side to do that just because they are, you know, quote unquote, in the right in that particular incidence. Right. I mean, and and to add to sort of this discussion, you know, we take a an oath that says we will zealously represent our clients. And as public defenders, we don't have the option to say, I'm not going to represent this person unless there's some sort of conflict of interest. So, you know, you are sworn to zealously represent this person. And you can know that they did it. What you can't do is suborn perjury. These are the ethics that we grapple with as lawyers. And I I, I appreciate your entertaining that conversation just because it's one that somewhat to my surprise still, still comes up uh, regularly in conversation with folks. At some point, you decided to try to become a judge. And I say try to become a judge because it's you, it's you don't just apply for the job and get hired. You have to run for judge, right? You have to be elected as a judge. Uh, what was it that attracted you to the job of, of judging? And what was it like getting involved in what is essentially politics? Great questions for sure. I think number one, and I had a lot of people that didn't like this answer, but it's the short answer. And the true answer, and I believe I've proven it was true, I think I'd be good at it. And some people thought, well, that's a flip answer. I said, well, I can, I can flesh that out for you. I think I'd be good at it because I know how to listen. I know how to talk to people most of the time such that they hear what I'm saying. That's extremely important. I saw a lot of good judging, and I saw some really bad judging, some people that did not understand the people before them, how their lives operate. For instance, a judge, this man was late for court. He came in front of this judge and the judge was angry. You know, why are you late, unrepresented? And he said, the bus didn't come. And this judge went, ah, ha, 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 ha. the buses always come. And I thought, well, you ain't waited at the bus stop before, you know? And it's those those little things that make such a such a big difference. So I thought I'd be good at it. But the other piece of that is then the political piece. And it, it's a real challenge. North Carolina elects their judges. The first time I ran, I believe I believe both times I ran, come to think of it, nonpartisan. And so you could have a Democrat facing a Democrat in the general election. And for anyone to say they're not political, I would say, yes, the process is political. But as I stood out there polling and meeting Republican voters who said, well, I can't vote for you, you're a Republican, I I would say, I promise you, I will not ask one single person who comes before me whether they're a Democrat or a Republican. So it's a real mixed. The political part of it is not fun. Raising money as a judge just is not appropriate. Yeah, well, it is a weird, it's like 
in a way like cramming a, a square peg through a round hole in the sense that we elect judges, but most of the voters really have no idea who they're voting for. People used to call me all the every lawyer in town. I think gets the same thing. Their friends call them and say, "Hey, who do, who do you think I should vote for for judge?" Because I don't know anything about any of them. And a lot of times, I didn't know anything about most of them either. I mean, I had a few that I liked, but you were in district court, for example, and that's a court that I didn't really practice in, and so I didn't, I didn't really know the district court judges. And so I would have to ask my my lawyer friends, like, "Hey, who should I vote for?" And they would say, "Well, Tracy Hewitt, definitely." And then after that, you know, <laughs> good response. Yeah, thanks, thanks. So, so the to jump kind of dovetail with that is I've struggled with this in my own mind. Is like, all right. I don't think the political way is, is the right way. There are a lot of problems with that. But then what's the alternative? An appointment, right. which is how I eventually got on the bench. Right. But but if you take away all the voting, then I just think there's too much room for a good old boy, good yeah. old girl system. Yeah, that's the critique. I mean, I, I think the the... The plus side of that is that people can be vetted by through the networks that actually know what they're talking about. So you can, you know, there's there's pros and cons. Like, exactly. And 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 the theory for electing is sort of accountability to the population. The the idea being that, but but we also know certainly in the context of judging specifically that our constitution allows for an insulation from the popular will as well. And like in the federal system, for example, our judges are appointed for life expressly so that they don't have to be accountable to voters. And and yeah, there's there's it's it's a choice. We make a choice when we structure our society and and every approach has its own advantages and disadvantages. Yeah, agreed. And to your point, I was only in what we call courtroom 1150, which is first appearance and just massive, you know, setting bonds and all that. And there used to be, I don't know if they're still active, a group called Court Watch. Oh, I'm I'm familiar. And they would wear (laughs) T-shirts and sit in the court and they're taking notes about what the judge is doing. My recollection of this group is that they're basically sort of a tough on crime group, like that they their their objection was to what they would describe as kind of a, ro- a revolving door in the court system where repeat criminal offenders keep getting put back out on the street. And in my understanding of their initiative was basically to let the system know that they're the citizens are there and they're interested in making in being safe and being free from being preyed upon by habitual criminals. I think that's the way they would describe themselves. <laughs> and and I think that that's a fair description. I think the intentions were were certainly good, but it could cause issues. But courtrooms are open, you know, anyone can come and watch and they should. I wonder what it was like for you the first time when you've you've been elected and you've gone to work, you drove yourself to the courthouse and you went in and you put on the robe and then they made everybody stand up and you walked in and the first time that people are looking at you and expecting you to make a decision. And by the way, while we're at it, you're spending a lot of time in the family court and you're making decisions about people's lives that it's all weighty and it's all important. When you make decisions about people's liberty, it, it implicates some of the most important interests that there are. And the same is true in the family court where you're making decisions about children and where people live and how they're financially provided for. And it must weigh on you. And I wonder what it was like for you the first time you realized, I actually have to decide this now. It was surreal 
to walk in, and it was a day where it was emotions day, which means, and the place was full of lawyers, absolutely full, every seat taken of lawyers, paralegals, whoever was there to answer up or what have you. Guess I can say this now. I had spent the weekend looking through the files, but these are civil motions. I had no idea, none whatsoever. Here you are, uh, retired now, no longer having to make those tough decisions, no longer having to run uh, for office and send out emails to lawyers who are going to immediately unsubscribe. You're finished with all of that. and But with, with every change in life, I imagine there's an opportunity for reflection on where you are and where you've been and where you're headed and how you choose to fill your days and the days that remain. And I wonder when in your quiet moments now between trips and visits with your family, when you reflect on where you are, what you see for yourself and how you feel about what's brought you here and where you're going. Yeah, well, that's a big question. The other day, and it's a little bit of a flip answer, but, but the other day I was sitting there and I went, how did I do that stuff? Like, how physically, mentally, and emotionally did I do that? And of course, the answer is because you just do. You know, you're young and you're striving and you have some vision and et cetera, et cetera, and you you do it. You don't know if you're always going to succeed. You might fail. But now I'm very at peace about my career path. I, I have some pride about it for sure. And mostly I see that in my daughter, who is now a paralegal at the Federal Defender's Office and just doing a great job. I do expect that after this first year, I will get involved in some something that sort of assists the community and or people. But I co-opted a term for this year. This is my gap year. So I'm just kicking back and, you know, of course I read and, and things like that, but I, I'm not out there in the community doing doing much. Well, you've earned it. You deserve it. Appreciate your being with us on the Charlotte Ledger podcast today. Tracy Hewitt, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Delighted. That's it for today. The Charlotte Ledger podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger at thecharlotteledger.com. And you can find out more about our 40 Over 40 awards at ledger40over40.com. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com.